In the darkness you light my way And all of the while inside me Love seems to say Someday, someday And when I sleep you keep my heart away And when I wake from dreams divine Every breath that I take Is a prayer that I'll make you mine go ahead and call the meeting to order and invite you all to join me in stating the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, for liberty and justice for all. All right. Um, Clerk Collier, can you lead us in a roll call of the Planning Commission? Commissioner Smith, here. Commissioner Miller, here. Commissioner Fullerton, here. Vice Chair Chapman, present. Chair Maynard, present. Um, quick note, we do have a couple of extra seats over to the side here if anyone's looking for some chairs. Um, so we're gonna go ahead and start the public forum tonight. The public forum is a time on the agenda when anybody who is here tonight um, can speak on any topic that is not on tonight's agenda. So if there's something that you'd like to share with the Planning Commission today, uh, you can do that at this time as long as it is not currently on the agenda. If you would like to do so, please give a speaker slip to Clerk Collier here. Uh, with, do we have any speaker slips for public forum? I do not have any speaker slips. If there's anyone joining us via Zoom, please raise your hand and I'll call on you momentarily. I have no hands raised. All right, wonderful. We'll go ahead and move on to amendments or adjustments to tonight's agenda. Director Imhoff, are there any amendments or adjustments? Madam Chair, we have no amendments or adjustments. Thank you. Uh, we'll now move on to um, our public hearing for this evening. And we, um, Clerk Collier, can you read item B1 into the record? Item B1, consideration of general plan and Title 17 zoning, amendments to implement housing element 2023-2031 programs and Title 17 amendments to update other portions of Title 17 and determination that the amendments are exempt from the California Environmental Quality Act. Wonderful, and Ms. Wells, will you start us in the presentation? Uh, yes, uh, hello and um, welcome to this public hearing for um, the general plan and Title 17 amendments. And these revisions that are proposed tonight are part of our regular maintenance um, amendments and this is what we refer to as our sixth round, or fifth round of amendments since we adopted our zoning code in Title 17 in 2020. Um, I'm Advanced Planning Manager Ann Wells and I'm accompanied by Andy Newkirk, uh, Supervising Senior Planner in um, Advanced Planning. And um, um, just to flag a couple administrative things, in the staff report package in attachment two, 
um, you will, or sorry, attachment one, you will find the um, proposed amendments to the general plan, and that's in exhibit A. And then you'll see the Title 17 uh, regulations, the amendments in that exhibit B. And then the track change, or sorry, the, yeah, the track change version is in a table of the regulation changes that are proposed, and those are in attachment two to the staff report. It's kind of typical of the format of, of our maintenance amendments. Um, there was one written comment on this item, and it's posted online. Um, and, and most of those comments are, will be covered through the presentation tonight. Um, but of course, you can always ask us questions at the, after the presentation. And um, I'll also flag that there is an erratum to the item, and that's also posted online um, with the staff report and um, distributed. And that is to add greater clarity to one of the amendments that implements our housing elements. So we'll flag that as well. And if you could switch to the next slide. The format for this public hearing is familiar, um, staff presentation, and then your questions of staff, and then we would take public comment, and then you would deliberate, and then take action on the recommendation, and I'm just looking for your nod of agreement that this is a good approach, if not the better one. All right, so we will proceed with the presentation, and um, Andy Newkirk, Newkirk has got it from here. Thanks, Ann. Uh, Chair Maynard and Planning Commissioners, so as Ann mentioned, we do these kind of what we call these rounds of amendments every year or so now as kind of maintenance um, to our zoning code. These these amendments are typically, um, well, sometimes substantive, not um, seen as controversial. We don't perceive them as controversial or needing like real workshopping or sounding out that they're, they should be pretty straightforward in nature. So this is the fifth round of these and we, we plan to do these every year as we grow and learn and try to improve our processes and standards and clarity. Um, what's a little bit unique about this round is we've also coupled this with housing element implementation. Um, and we did a little bit, bit of this last year as well, but this year it includes general plan amendments. So that's why this, this packet is not simply a zoning ordinance. There's also the, the general plan amendments that are considered in the draft resolution in front of you. Um, and the background there is we adopted our amended housing element on December 5th after review from Planning Commission. And there is a lot of programs in that housing element that call for zoning amendments. We actually did the first round last spring after our initial housing element um, adoption. And so this is kind of our round two of these housing element implementation regulations. And, and the, the housing element implementation regulations in front of you tonight in the amendments are ones that we saw as very explicitly directed within the housing element itself, so that it isn't something where there's a range of options to consider. We have already committed in the housing element to update our zoning and in some instances general plan very clearly and explicitly. And that's why we felt like they fit in well with these cleanup amendments because they are, while sometimes substantive, there's not really flexibility in terms of our direction moving forward. Um, so the, and then there'll be a subsequent round of some further amendments later, later this year that are a little more, there's a little more flexibility included. Um, so, so just jumping right into the substance and how this is structured in the staff report itself, the first grouping of amendments are for housing element implementation. And um, there's two slides here. The first slide 
includes amendments both to zoning and our general plan. So both were needed to um, implement these the programs that called out these amendments. So the first edit is for mixed-use permitting. So we allow mixed-use residential development in three non-residential zones. In, in all instances in our zoning code, they currently require a CUP. And in, in two instances, the text of our land use element actually explicitly calls out the requirement for a CUP. So we had to amend um, and remove those references in the land use element descriptions of the underlying land use designations and also update our use tables in Title 17 to remove those conditional use permit requirements. Um, and just kind of a little background there, some of the thinking there is if you have an existing commercial structure and you want to convert some of that to residential to make it mixed use, even if you weren't changing the structure at all, under our regulations you would still need a CUP. Mm -hmm. um, and so we removed that requirement now so you could, it would be an easier process to do that conversion. Mm -hmm. If you're doing ground up new development, you may well still need a discretionary entitlement and development plan for that structural development. Just that use component wouldn't need this discretionary approval. Could I also make a request as we start to get into these slides that have a lot of acronyms? Could you spell some of them out as we go through just because we ha have so many new faces in the audience sure, tonight? Sure, sure. Thank you. We'll do that. So condition, no CUPs, no conditional use permits. Um, so again, um, if, if those uses are allowed, they could go through without um, needing to address use in terms of permitting. Um, the second set of amendments here are to our height standards. And so um, there's two kind of groupings of amendments here. Both require general plan amendments and zoning amendments. The first is to our um, three of our four residential or three of our five residential districts in the coastal zone. That's planned residential, medium density residential, and high density residential. In the inland area, the height standard is 35. Um, in the coastal, it's currently 25 feet. And so we flagged that um, as a change that was needed really to facilitate three-story development to get the densities that were outlined for those zones um, to make them more feasible um, in, in, in practice. And, and we'll note that while we're increasing the height in the coastal zone, there are other zones that already allow 35 feet in the coastal zone. It was only the residential zones that were capped at 25 feet. So we're not going beyond what other uses are allowed to build at. And then the second height standard changes to commercial Old Town. So that's primarily that first block along Hollister in Old Town. There's some deviations from that, but primarily that Hollister frontage um, changing from 30 feet to 35 feet again to better facilitate three-story development to get especially mixed use with that commercial component to make that more um, realistic. And then the third change is to lot coverage, and so that's in the high-density residential only where this change is included both in the general plan and in Title 17, and that's to increase the lot coverage maximum from 40% to 50%. And that, again, is greater flexibility, and it might facilitate lower heights and other potential benefits for a site anyway. So um, that was something that was flagged in our housing element. Um, so the next set are housing element implementations that didn't require general plan amendments. Um, so the first is um, uh, amending the process for shared parking. So that's where two uses basically get to benefit from the same parking spot. If, for instance, peak demand for those uses is offset. So one example might be mixed-use projects where you have a residential component and a commercial component, or offices or something like that, where you're not expecting that single spot to be needed by both uses, or at least not all of it. Um, currently, the only way you can get shared parking as a parking reduction in the code is with a conditional use permit. Um, and so that's 
you know, obviously creates a, a burden for someone seeking to do that. And so in the housing element, we include an implementation to remove that requirement. And so we've done that um, in, in the draft ordinance, but this is where the erratum is included. Um, we removed the requirement for a CUP and left in the draft in the draft of the ordinance in the packet, just left it up to the review authority without saying explicitly what approval you would need. And the idea is if you know if you have a development plan or a CUP, you wouldn't need this additional approval. You could do it with that other approval. However, there could be instances where um, you know property owner uses are seeking shared parking agreement approval, but they don't actually need another permit. So they could you know theoretically someone could come in. Maybe they're they're non-conforming as to parking under the new Title 17 standards, and they want to remove that. So they want to get basically an approval for a shared parking agreement to to remove that non-conforming status. For instance, they don't need any other entitlement from the city. So without explaining that what the baseline approval would be, there'd be kind of this gap um, hypothetically. So the erratum includes a baseline requirement of a land use permit. Um, and so as you see that edit, it would be if there was some other approval that was needed, the shared parking could be approved through that process. If there was no other process that was needed, then it would default to a land use permit, which would be at the staff level. So that's what that clarity um, was added for. Um, so the second item here is has to do with our inclusionary housing procedures. Um, under our inclusionary procedures, policy and regulations, we have a preference for development of inclusionary, that's the below market rate units as part of a project. We have a preference for those units to be built on site. That's ideally what we wanna see is the project itself building those units with the project. But there are other means for meeting the requirements such as offsite development or extension of uh, below market rate units at risk of conversion to market rate. So there are other ways that um, that can be achieved. There are specific findings that would have to be made. Um, and it, we changed our inclusionary policy in the housing element, that's HE 2.5, to remove the requirement that th that alternative means of compliance be made by the city council and only the city council. So un under the way we had it in the housing element and what's in the Title 17 now is only city council can, can approve a project with alternative means of compliance. So even if, say, the project would normally come to planning commission, planning commission would then become the recommending body and there'd be an additional hearing at council to approve that alternative means of compliance. And um, that was removed, seen as, um, you know, we, we looked at our, our inclusionary policy and we had, you know, input from HCD or concerns from HCD about the burden, burdensome nature of our inclusionary. And so we felt like this was a way while still requiring the standards um, of lessening the, the procedural burdens for meeting our inclusionary policy. So um, under the draft ordinance in front of you, the, um, the alternative means can be approved by the review authority. And in this instance, re review authority works because you'd always need some type of permit for new housing. So if it was a development plan that was otherwise approved by planning commission, planning commission would be the the review authority that could approve alternative means of compliance if they could make the findings for that alternative means of compliance. And then finally, um, emergency shelters, that's an existing use that we have in our zoning code, and we're just expanding the allowance for emergency shelters to one more zoning district that's office and institutional. And this was really driven by our housing element, but also by recent changes in state law where we had to allow emergency shelters in a zone that allows um, residential. So we had, to, we had to adjust to a change in state law that 
was fairly recent here. Um, so that's a, that's a pretty straightforward change. And um, it's seen as a public and quasi-public use that can be allowed in OI. So we have that flexibility without having to um, worry about general planning consistency there. So we can just do that as a straight zoning amendment. So next up is a non-housing state law consistency. Um, I guess the first one is actually housing law, but not from a housing element. Um, and this just reflects um, our density bonus regulations are fairly thin. It's more about process rather than the standards. We really default to the state, um, the government code on the standards as they change quite a bit. Um, but one of, one of the pieces we have in our regulations is submittal requirements. And we have um, a component where the applicant, as it's currently adopted, the applicant has to show why the density bonus concessions are necessary for the project. And that's, there's a change in the state law fairly recently where um, the applicant didn't have that burden anymore. So we've, we've amended that submittal requirement to, to match kind of the, the extent in which we can require um, kind of justification for the density bonus from the applicant. And it's fairly minimal because they don't, again, they don't have to show that this is critical to the project. Um, so that, that's a change that was, that's included. The next revolves around electric vehicle charging stations. And this is something we, we've talked about a few times, especially during the development of Title 17. Um, in our parking standards, we have minimum requirements for actual EV charging stations as, as a percentage of certain um, development, certain parking lots. Um, and there's like a threshold of 20 spaces, et cetera, and certain only applies to certain uses. Um, and we've discussed this quite a bit with our sustainability division who tracks um, the building code and what we call Cal Green, the kind of uh, green building standards as they evolve. And um, one thing that's gonna be changing on July 1st of this year is increased requirements in our building code, the state building code, which we adopt, requiring um, quite a bit more EV charging stations, not just um, kind of the infrastructure underground to make it possible later, but actually real charging stations as a mandate. Um, and, and with those changes on July 1st, they will exceed what's in our zoning code. Um, and we, we, want, we don't want to have a standard that would suggest someone's meeting our requirements only to go to the building code later and have to do more. That's just that's a, you know, not doing a service to the public or to our planners. So we are proposing to remove the electrical vehicle charging station requirement from the code altogether, well, with a cross-reference to the building code. Not so that it's clear that there's still a standard, but there's no actual standard going to be in Title 17 anymore. We will default to the standard in the building code. And um, we, if you look at the draft ordinance under the effective date, um, that one provision of the ordinance would go into effect July 1st. We would expect, if we stay on schedule, that this ordinance that's in front of you will become effective before July 1st. So we didn't ha want to have a gap where there wasn't a requirement. So that one provision would, would kick in later. Um, and I should note that the city is considering what's considered an EV reach code. Um, and I think there was an email that went out today to remind folks that there's a lunch and learn at noon on Wednesday to discuss a possible reach code beyond those Cal Green standards that will kick in July 1st. Um, but those would be done as part of a building code amendment, not zoning code. So I wanted to flag that for anyone who's interested in that process is that we'll likely not come back to Planning Commission because it won't be in the zoning code itself. And then the last item is accessor an accessory dwelling unit amendment. Um, we've, 
we've changed our ADU regulations, accessory dwelling unit regulations quite a bit over the last few years. There was not an urgency ordinance um, for this year because um, we didn't, there were no edits that were critical to maintain consistency with state law. But one change that we did wanna clean up is the owner occupancy requirement. Under, uh, previously under state law and under Title 17, we don't require owner occupancy on the site in one, either the main structure or an ADU. However, as of January 1st, 2025, we would have. But the state law changed this last legislative session to make that prohibition of an owner occupancy requirement permanent, which means we won't be requiring an owner, owner occupancy at all in the future. So we cleaned up the language there. It wasn't critical that we did so. There was some reference to state law if the state law changed, but we thought it, would just, it was just good practice to clean that up. But that, just know that um, we will not be um, really ever requiring that owner occupancy unless the state law changes again on that front. So next, next up are a set of minor revisions. And some of these are a bit nuanced. I'll try to walk you through them, but they are truly minor. Um, the first is in planned residential. And planned residential kind of is this broad category of residential. It sometimes looks like single family. It sometimes looks like multifamily. The density ranges in planned residential are pretty wide. And, and so when you look like on a map, it, it sometimes thinks it looks like different types of residential housing. Um, and one, one issue that's come up is in, for a single, a single family like detached unit on, in planned residential, you can have these side setbacks that are actually bigger than in single family. Um, just by, by the way the, um, the setback is measured, it's measured in RP as a percentage of the lot width. So you can get these instances where um, planned residential side setbacks, even for single family units on what otherwise look like just single family lots, are actually bigger than in RS. And in the county code, there was a provision that essentially allowed what was our RP, which was designed residential, to use the single family setback standard if the development on the lot was a single family dwelling. So a lot of our RP single family detached units actually reflect that lesser side setback. But now under the code, because we don't have that provision, those units are now non-conforming. And so what we're basically doing is bringing back that provision to allow the use of the single family setback. And we really don't see any negative of this and it's really gonna help those units stay out of non-conforming territory. And, and kind of allow them to maintain as they were developed. Um, the second, a couple little edits for boarding kennels. Um, one is to allow in industrial zones. Um, they're currently not allowed there. And so um, it's a kind of use, obviously it's not an industrial use, but it may well be suited for industrial zones when you think about the noise they may generate, and it might not be best near like residential or offices or those types of uses. They may have real compatibility issues, and sometimes they might work best in industrial zones. And so we, we've proposed to allow them um, with conditional use permits, because you know there still are some compatibility issues as it's not an industrial use. Um, so we think that broadening 
um, makes sense and there's no consistency issues with the general plan or no concerns. And then also the update the definition of boarding kennels. Um, right now, the way it's written, um, the animals can't be owned by the operator. Um, and the example of Santa Barbara Humane, which may otherwise be considered a kennel, they actually technically own the animals because they're looking to adopt, get them adopted. So there were some challenges with the definition, so we wanted to clean that up, and, and there was really no reason to limit it that way. We didn't see any compelling reason to limit it um, in that way, so we've removed that requirement in the use definition. Um, next up is sign materials. Um, this, we've added in a prohibition of vinyl for permanent signs. I think this is probably something everyone would expect, is that vinyl signs wouldn't be on a permanent sign. You typically see them as a temporary kind of strung up while someone's maybe trying to get their sign approved or something like that. We wanted to be clear that what the expectation was there on the long term and that that wasn't something that kind of was left up in a gray area and that applicants may try to seek. And then finally here is sign area allowances. Um, so the way our sign standards work is the overall area of signage, and this is cumulative for a site, is based on the, your street frontage times a certain amount of square feet. So it might be the feet of your frontage times 0.5 or something like that. And that kind of gives you an overall, overall capacity for what you can do. And so you could have maybe you know, a big sign or a couple smaller signs, but it kind of gave you a limit as to the overall signage. One issue that's come up is technically some, some properties have street frontage along 101, and they can often be pretty long. And so that can lead to those properties. They may have a couple frontages on kind of public streets in Goleta that people are actually you know, walking down and driving to those businesses from. But then they, add, they can also add in their 101 frontage and then that extra signage, that, that extra area could be used to create a lot more signage on the, the publicly accessible streets for their business or to allow some pretty big signage that's really not oriented towards passengers of their business but to the drivers on 101. And so we, wanted to, we proposed to create an exclusion from that frontage calculation for those areas that actually front along the highway itself. Um, as those really aren't accessible to the business anyways. Um, so, so that's proposed as well. So next up is um, minor changes to zoning permits. And so stepping back a little bit, um, we have our major permits, like a land use permit or development plan, but often someone will come in looking to make a little bit of a change to one of their previous approvals. So for development plans, it's just, substantial conformity de determinations and amendments. And for zoning permits like a land use permit, it's a zone, a minor change. Um, you may remember in round four, um, we, and I should say that in each case, there's like these threshold questions to try to make sure that those changes are, are fairly small. And if they don't meet the thresholds, they get kicked up to a, a higher level of approval. And when we came in front of the Planning Commission in round four last year, we proposed not including a substantial contra public controversy threshold for sustain substantial conformity determinations. Planning Commission accepted our proposal, and as did Council, and that was changed to not so that that threshold was not included. One of our Planning Commissioners at that hearing brought up that under minor changes, that same language was in our code, and we, we said we'd come back to that. So that's what we're doing here, 
is is removing proposing to remove the substantial public controversy threshold for minor changes to zoning permits. And and the reason we gave that and the reason we give now is that's a fairly subjective call. And so for a threshold, that becomes really difficult. Um, so you're basically making a subjective call before even determining what the application should be. And so we propose removing that for minor changes as well, um, like we did last round. Um, next up is interior floor area expansions. Um, so there is an exemption from zoning permits um, for interior alterations that don't expand the floor area and don't increase parking, right? So you're just kind of improving things on the inside. No one even from the outside notices anything. Um, there are instances, so if, if there's an increase in parking demand, that makes sense from, to need a zoning permit as we would want to um, look at whether there's adequate parking on the site. You're increasing parking demand. So if somehow like in a commercial building, often the parking is based on square footage. So if you're adding a bunch of square footage interior and you're increase, that increases your parking requirement, that, um, that, that suggests like there's a reason for the planners to look at it. However, particularly with residential uses, you could increase the floor area in the in interior and if you're not changing the bedrooms in particular, because residential parking standards are often based on bedrooms, you might not trigger a parking increase. And so, but yet under that exemption, because if you increase floor area, you're not exempt from permits, right? Even if you're not increasing the parking, you would still need to get a permit from planning, but there'd be absolutely nothing for the planner to look at. There's no changes in any standards. There's no increases in parking. There's no changes to the exterior of the building. So the planner would have to be issuing a permit. Or the city would have to be issuing a permit based on nothing. Um, and it just doesn't make sense. Um, so we propose removing that reference to floor area from that exemption and just say you're exempt if you're not increasing parking. Because that's really, for interior alterations, that's the thing we would be looking at. Um, so that simplifies it, and we'll give an out to some pretty simple residential improvements. Um, and then the, the final thing here is substantial conformity determinations and amendments. There's no explicit expiration for those improvals or procedures for time extensions. And this is just an oversight um, where they aren't specifically called out. So we've, we've lumped in those expiration and time extensions with, other, with zoning permits, which are kind of similar level kind of projects. And so that just basically, when you talk about an expiration, it's like if you get an approval, you can't just sit on that for a decade and not do it and then go back after 10 years and say, okay, here we go. Um, so that just clarifies and gives us, us as staff clear, something clear to point to in terms of how fast um, you know, an applicant must move once they get that approval. I think we're taking a second to see if we can get the slides back up.
All right, I think we're going to go ahead and get started again. We'll just talk through the last few slides. Uh, so, Mr. Newkirk, take Thank it you, away. Chair um, so, the last slide, so we're on now on slide 10, um, which is the clarifications and cleanups. Um, we aren't going to go over these. They're bulleted in the staff report. But we don't think any of them warrant specific attention, but we're, we're certainly, if anyone has any questions about those, we're certainly happy to answer any that you might have. Um, and then finally, um, the, on slide 11 is the, as we do any amendments to the general plan or zoning code, we need to ensure compliance with the California Environmental Quality Act or CEQA. Um, and so there's a draft notice of exemption provided in with, as an attachment to the staff report. And there's um, several reasons listed as to why um, this project is exempt from CEQA, including um, not meeting the definition of a project under CEQA guidelines, um, that there's no possibility for causing a significant environmental impact, um, that the impacts were already analyzed um, in the general plan EIR. And then finally, um, some of those substantive edits related to, or amendments related to the housing element were fully analyzed in the addendum to the general plan EIR, which was brought forward with um, the, the amended housing element in November and December. And if you remember, that addendum analyzed the housing element itself, the implementing general plan amendments, and the implementing zoning amendments. So they are explicitly covered in that addendum. Um, so with that, the next steps would be commission questions, public comment, commission deliberation, and action on the recommendation. All right, so I will take any clarifying questions that from the Planning Commission. And we do have our uh, screens today, so we'll go ahead and hit request to speak if you would like to speak. All right, um, Commissioner Smith. Thank you. I had a question regarding uh, the inclusionary housing uh, amendment, and uh, I understand it's it's implementing the, the change that we had in the general plan, but um, I know in practice uh, we've seen that uh, sometimes there might be negotiations, let's say, going on behind the scenes with the developer um, uh, potentially uh, with the involving, you know, the city, the city council, uh, there might be, you know, sort of other financial issues um, at play um, in addition to, to questions about inclusionary housing and, and, and the development of that housing. So uh, I guess I'm sort of, I'm wondering in practice, even if there was, let's say, a, a smaller project where the review authority uh, was not the city council. Um, I, I just wanted to confirm, I mean, the city council still ha retains its authority um, to sort of address other other financial issues that, that may be at play. Commissioner Smith, um, certainly. I mean, and that could be effectuated through a development agreement. Um, there are also other financial components that m don't explicitly relate to alternative compliance. And then theoretically, any action by planning commission would be appealable. Um, so ultimately, the city council, when it comes to land use in the city, they're the final local arbiter of, of these considerations should it, um, should it get appealed. And Director Imhoff. Yeah, no, Chair name. Smith, I just want to, um, I'm not sure I fully understood the question, but mm -hmm. I do want to point out that our um, permitting process is a very public and transparent process, really from start to finish. If there's work done by staff planners um, or um, our city decision makers, that all comes out in our hearing process 
and of course all of our communications and records with with our developers are public so um, we strive to really achieve transparency and uh, and openness in our process certainly I understand that I know um, sometimes there may be uh, uh, litigation or, or things um, that that the public may not be aware of or uh, that stays confidential um, or um, yeah I certainly I certainly don't don't mean to uh, yeah Im imply that those processes aren't public um, I I'm just thinking that just uh, and I guess again most of these kinds of issues tend to go to City Council anyways but um, just knowing that um, there can be um, uh, just I don't know other types of fees other uh, other kind of financial um, uh, things percolating uh, that those of us that are lower uh, review authorities we may not have as much kind of expertise or, or knowledge in so I was I was trying to sort of think through how, okay how does this actually play out if if lower review authorities are involved um, but yet maybe some of these other related financial issues are at stake um, and um, Mr. Newkirk flagged this that this was a um, state HCD or housing and community development um, staff question and concern about inclusionary on one hand they want us to have um, affordable units in all of our developments we know that and are familiar with it and our main tool is inclusionary and that's how we get them either constructed or or payment in lieu under certain circumstances um, and so this edit is something that they were expecting so we're we tried to, to strike kind of a um, a balance with the revision to the best of our ability That was my only question. Thank you. Uh, Commissioner Miller. I'd like to get some clarification about the shared parking um, element. And um, you explained that uh, uh, no COPs were needed for shared parking now, I assume, to help streamline that whole process. but. Um, my first question is, um, is there much shared parking in the city of Goleta right now? And just curious about that, if it's kind of a um, commonplace thing or kind of unusual or whatever. So if you can kind of give me some um, input as to that. And then um, going into the future with shared parking, um, just to clarify and simplify it, um, so if two, let's say, adjacent owners of property decide that they'd be willing to share parking, um, what is the process for them to make that happen? Um, I assume they can't just do it without notifying the city, but could they do it without notifying the city? Could they just have an agreement between the two of them? Um, you know, your your tenants in this apartment building can can park in my um, commercial lot um, on the weekends and in the evening when um, no one else is using it. 
when my commercial tenants aren't using it. Um, is it that type of thing? Do you can you just do a you know a gentleman's agreement, so to speak, a, a shake of hand, or uh, what is the process that these two owners would uh, you know? What is the simplification of the process that these two owners would would enter into? Um, and the reason I think this is important is because. I think um, you know, with all the talk of the housing element and and building more housing and certainly high density housing in the city of Goleta through our housing element, um, you know, I think parking parking in some areas is already cumbersome, and um, I think that you know, with all the housing that we're planning to see in the next ten years, um, you know the parking could become more cumbersome? I don't know. So I'd just like some some backstory on that and, um, you know, what the future might look like in that regard. So Commissioner Miller, I can, I can take that. Um, in terms of are you shared parking agreements common, I think they're certainly since Title 17 uncommon because they would have come to you. Um, as the Planning Commission, I don't think any shared parking agreement has come to Planning Commission since the adoption of Title 17 at least. So I, w I would say they're, they're not particularly common in the city, at least at this point. Um, and then in terms of procedurally, what would you know, operators or property owners or businesses need to do? Um, so again, we would still require a land use permit and there would still be the four findings in 1738050B. And so they're really fairly technical, um, looking at um, parking demand and peak and peak demand, and making sure that those kind of don't overlap in a way that would exceed the actual parking spaces that are available. Um, so it would really be some tech, mostly technical analysis. And then when it comes to well, one of the four findings is where they're separate property owners um, and they're shared shared parking between properties, and that would require a conjunctive parking agreement. So there would need to be a record of that um, that use of the parking. And so that we would need to have to see that in order to allow it. Is it possible that there are gentlemen's agreements out there, as you mentioned? Possibly, but that wouldn't be consistent with our zoning regulations because our zoning regulations require um, an approval for the shared parking. And I think Ms. Kai has more to add. And um, before we leave that topic of the agreements, um, the city is a party to those conjunctive parking agreements. So we get notice of any changes we have to sign when there are any amendments to those agreements. Okay, thank you very much. That is um, very enlightening. Thank you. Uh, Vice Chair Chapman. Thank you. Um, I had a question about the um, the shared parking uh, as well. Um, one of the questions I had is that so the, the shared parking reduction requires a demand study. Um, is that required for the actual say the the uh, land use permit itself, or is that uh, not a normal requirement? Uh, Vice Chair Chairman, I don't think it would be, well, I'm not sure what type of land use permit you're referring to, because some uses don't need a permit at all, 
some need a land use permit, some need a conditional use permit. I would say typically for, you know, we have specific use parking requirements and there's a table in the parking standards. So I'm not sure, there, um, there may be specific instances where we'd look at that or where the use doesn't spell out an explicit parking standard. Um, some, there's a, a couple uses in that parking table that the parking standard is as determined by the review authority. So there may be instances where we need more information about a specific use. Um, I think some of those are like community assembly where the parking demand can vary dramatically within that use and it's really hard to, to pinpoint a specific standard. But I, I, I don't think that would be required of, of any use necessarily. But uh, Vice Chair Chapman, just to add to that, I, I, and I hope I understood the question, um, the parking standards, whatever they are, have to be met at the time that the permit is approved. So we would have to evaluate that and determine, however, whatever the mix is, whether it's all on site or through a shared parking agreement, that that's met at the time of the permit approval. Um, and then there might be certain um, prior to issuance conditions, for example, an agreement um, such as uh, Ms. Kai alluded to would have to be then um, entered into before we actually issued that permit, but we'd have to we'd have to know how the parking would be met. Okay, so I get yeah. I guess the question is is that a, a parking demand study, um, you know, the use case I'm thinking of is is a, a commercial development. A parking demand study isn't a normal uh, requirement for that. It's just based on the the standards in it published in the tables. Correct. Normally, it would just be a function of the zoning standards. Okay. Um, and I guess w w what is the reason that the um, the demand study is required for the shared parking reduction? Uh, Vice Chair Chapman, I think in this instance we would need more detail because we really, I mean, the idea is our parking standards are what's needed for each use, but we don't look at like, you know, a graph of demand over a 24-hour period for that use. We're really looking at like peak hour kind of an assumption about peak hour, but we're not spelling out necessarily when we expect those peak hours to be, where when, if you're looking at two uses sharing and you want to make sure things like that demand doesn't overlap, um, we, would want to we would want to see more detail about some of those assumptions to feel confident that we wouldn't be creating an externality to other businesses or other properties. So I guess, could there be a scenario in which, you know, um certain uses could be assumed to not have overlap. I think the, you know, one of the most common things I think we're going to see in the future is, is applications for a residential over commercial. Um, is that something that's sort of going to typically not overlap or is it really a case by case thing? Vice Chair Chairman, I think it's hard to say. Um, I mean, you could have even, even within an eating and drinking establishment, you could have, you know, a, a deli that isn't open after two o'clock, right? Or you could have a restaurant that folk doesn't open till four, and so the, the you know the demand and potential conflicts with residential may vary quite a bit, even within something as discreet as eating and drinking establishments. So I think it's really hard to say with certainty um, how that will look. Um, you know, it's certain, certainly something we can track, like look at over time. But I think it's really hard to to give definitive absolutes and. Um, I think our approach is some caution on parking reductions to make sure that we're not kind of getting out ahead of that understanding the demand and the needs, um, you know, both on that site and then off the site. Um, and then one last question about that. It, it, it's sort of um, 
maybe rudimentary, but I think it would be good to understand the whole thing. Um, so what is sort of the original basis of the parking requirements based on use and, and, and square footage and, and things like that? Where did the, those sort of numbers come from? So a bit of a combination of locations. So some of it is similar to our old code. Um, there was some tinkering based on kind of best practices. There was also some consideration during the hearing process by members of the Planning Commission and City Council regarding specific standards. So it kind of, it's, it's a bit of a combination of different, different places. Okay, thank you. That's, that's all I've got for now. Commissioner Fullerton, do you have any questions? Um, I have a couple. Um, so with the kennel definition, was the intent of around the ownership to sort of not have like an, say like an individual who wanted to just uh, have a large number of animals just at like a pr private residence, was that where the ownership concept came from? Chair Maynard, don't think so. Because yeah. um, we have separate regulations yeah. for small household pets. Okay. So that's really the residential okay. requirement and where boarding in kennels is meant as a yeah. non-residential. So yeah. I, I, we don't think so. Do, do we have any idea why that was in there originally? Uh, can't say for certain. It's okay. probably something that, probably something so nuanced, didn't get a lot of eyeballs on it originally. Okay. Um, and it just it proved to be a complicating factor in, in actually applying it. Okay. Um, with the 101 frontage changes in signage, will that create any non-conforming uses that we know of? Um, Vice Chairman, I'm not aware. Um, I, I don't believe. I believe this question came to DRB, and they didn't support that added mm -hmm. signage on, in one instance. Um, we've we changed the methodology for signage with Title 17. So even using this street frontage as mm -hmm. an, an overall sign area standard is mm -hmm. fairly new to the city. Okay. So, you know, um, if there were nonconformities that were created with a frontage methodology, that would have been really because of just the added method in Title 17. Um, and actually, those are all my questions for now. So with this, um, I'm going to move us, actually just double check if anybody wants a second shot at questions. Oh, uh, Vice Chair Chapman. Thank you. Um, I had a question about the um, the reasonable sort of the reasonable uh, need documentation for the density bonus applications. Um, so uh, you know, it's it's gone from saying that sort of the density bonus is financially necessary to you know to make the project financially viable. Um, it's now sort of a, a broader um, sort of what what is. I guess it kind of makes me wonder what the, the purpose of this uh, is, and is it something that's actionable? Um, this, this, you know, uh, reasonable. Yeah, basically, how it will result in cost reductions for the project. Yeah, Vice Chair Chapman. Admittedly, on the state law, it's it's pretty watered down, but we're trying to retain what requirements we can have from the state law. Um, so it does require some type of showing of the applicant, although admittedly it's it's a pretty low bar, presumably, you know, um, but that they still need to make sh some showing that it's um, going to lead to cost reductions. So it gives some rationale um, for their um, justific, you know, for their project description, not 
developing on site. So um, it is something that we can require and that they need to show that there's some some value to what what they're getting from the city in that alternative compliance. Or I should say in, in the concessions right. granted. Thank you. Um, and then an additional question about the uh, expansion of floor area. Um, is there actually any case in which in residential zones that would increase parking requirements? Um, I, without, I, I could follow the parking standards, but some of the parking is based on number of bedrooms. So theoretically, if you increase the floor area by like, um, and then at, in that increased floor area, there was an added bedroom, um, you might trigger an extra parking space required. Um, so theoretically, it could happen. But usually the instances where we've seen this is where there might be like a, a vaulted living room that's really like two stories and they want to put like a balcony or something, you know. So they're not adding, you know, to put a you know, desk up and, you know, kind of another space in their unit. And in that instance, they're not adding bedrooms. Yet under our code, they wouldn't be exempt from zoning permits. And in that instance, there would be nothing for us to look at but something for building to look at, making sure that's structurally sound. Okay. And I guess... Sort of inversely, is there situations in which you know a reconfiguration of a building that doesn't increase floor area but increases the number of bedrooms by you know, like making smaller rooms like a that that would actually uh, trigger an increase in parking requirements? Uh, potentially, sure. Um, yeah, I, let me. Uh, um, yeah, I'd have to look, but there's you know like in you could have a, a condo um, if you can if you switch from one to two bedrooms, you may trigger an extra parking space. For instance, so if you took, if you had like, if one of the bedrooms was quite large, or like you had a, a huge master bedroom and you put in an extra wall to create another, and, and met the definition of a, a bedroom, you might need more parking. Um, so there is instances. I mean, I don't, I don't think it happens very often, but there is a theoretical scenario where that could occur. Okay, thank you. That's all for now. Any last questions from commissioners? All right. Uh, so we're now going to go into the public comment period. Uh, so if anybody has a public comment on item B1, um, please make sure to get your speaker slips into Collier here. Um, and do, let's, do we have anybody to start us off? We do have one request to speak. If there's anyone joining us via Zoom that wishes to speak on this item, please raise your hand and I'll call you momentarily. Our first speaker is going to be April Reed. Welcome, Ms. Reed. Hello. First of all, I want to talk about transparency, which was brought up today, and the extreme lack of it from the city. Um, this is, I've been to a lot of these meetings, and this is the first that I have ever heard that the purpose of moving something up to 35 feet was to have three stories. I've never heard that before, and I've been to a lot of these meetings. Um, so I really don't appreciate the um, claim that you guys are all transparent. It's just saying. And that goes for the city council also. Um, obviously, I would have objected to it if I, you know, in a timely manner if I would have known that uh, that was the purpose of moving up to 35 feet. Um, and now it's too late. Uh, moving on to... Kenwood Village, which is my personal um, pet peeve. Um, I'm going to show you pictures. This is the flooding three days, three full days after 
the last uh, storm. So this needs to be dealt with. Um, this is the flooding running into the street. This is on Kenwood Village also. So there needs to be something done. It's all over the property. It's just completely flooded. Um, this is a picture of the easement that I'm claiming behind Baker Lane and Kenwood Village and also behind Tuolumne. Um, so I just want to be clear that I am claiming an easement. This is another picture of the well-worn easement. Some of you can actually you know, have the courtesy of looking at these pictures. I would appreciate it. You can pretend for 30 minutes or not. Ms. Wells, do you see it? Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, this is another uh, easement. I have tons of these pictures. I'm happy to send them to you. Uh, more flooding all over the property, and having the property owner uh, clean it up does not mean dumping it all on my property or in the street. Lastly, um, I thought this might have just been a rumor, but after tonight, I'm not so sure. Um, I was told by the property owner that the city, and I don't know if this is true or not, was negotiating with the, uh, the property owner to increase the number of housing units he could build on the property. And I don't know if that's true or not, but I would request that if that is true, that it be made public. Um, no more secret deals. You guys had secret deals when you guys did the zoning. So I think it should be disclosed to people. Um, and if you want to talk about transparency, I could go on for about an hour. So if you want to bring that up again, I'll be happy to play that game. Thank you for your comments, Ms. Reed. Do we have any other public speakers? I have no other speaker slips, and there's nobody online with their hand raised. Okay. Last call for any public comments. All right. Not seeing any. We're going to go to another round of questions from the Planning Commission. Um, so if there's any additional clarifying questions before we go into deliberation, this is the time to do that. Um, so let me know if anybody wants to ask a question. Okay, uh, Vice Chair Chapman. Uh, yeah, I have an additional question um, about the side setbacks in the R uh, Plan Residential District. Um, do Do you have any idea what, kind of what the the purpose of having the different setback standards for the detached or attached buildings is? Vice Chair Chapman, um, I don't think we have a specific answer for that. It's a historical standard um, from, again, from the county codes of the code we use for 20 years. So really the, the amendment we're proposing is just to kind of remedy that creation of nonconformities that we, we may have done with the adoption of Title 17 at this point. Okay. Thank you. Any other questions from commissioners? I'm, I have one a small procedural thing. It's, it was just a typo on the resolution that we're making tonight. Um, it has our previous chair instead of our current chair. Um, and I don't know if we need to make it, uh, uh, note that in the motion in any way. Commissioner uh, Maynard, we will take care of that after the fact. That's okay. clerical nature, so we okay. do not need to address that. Thank but, you. Um, we will remind you that 
Um, should you know, should you get to deliberations, we do have that one erratum. Oh, um, so keep that in mind as okay. moving forward. Thank you very much. All right, uh, not seeing any other commentary, I will move on to deliberation. Who would like to start us in deliberation tonight? What? Commissioner Smith. Uh, I'll I'll begin. Um, you know, I think in terms of what's presented here tonight, um, you know, uh, we're implementing you know policies that that have been approved in our housing element. Um, other items are required under state law. Uh, other items are, are cleanup items, uh, and so it, and it's helpful to get the additional information shared tonight. And I very much appreciated. Um, the explanation of all the changes, but it all um, seems very straightforward, and I'm inclined um, to approve. I do, I do want to share that as we have future, um, the planning commission uh, in the future will um, likely see you know development proposals um, come our way, and um, for those who have certain very you know site specific uh, concerns, as those proposals come forward, I do. Um, encourage the public to you know continue to uh, participate and be involved in those um, processes um, uh, I I actually um, you know I'm now living uh, uh, in the in the air, in the neighborhood um, described and so you know I understand those concerns um, uh, but some some of that discussion will, will come at a future date um, and then, um, in terms in terms of um, the in terms of the, the the height standard that's changing, I would just note well a couple things. Um, you know, first through the housing element process, um, the cert the city of Goleta certainly faced a lot of pressures. You know, from the the state to accommodate um, more housing um, to address our housing shortage. Um, and then in in addition, if other uses are allowed at 35 feet. Um, then in the coastal zone, arguably that would, you know, incentivize those other uses over housing. So if we are going to have, um, you know, allow various uses in the coastal zone to 35 feet, um, uh, in our current environment, I don't know that we would want to incentivize other uses over, over housing uses. So, um, I just wanted to, to note that, um, but I am, uh, supportive of um, uh, approving the items before us tonight. Commissioner Fullerton. Yes, I agree. I echo all of your comments. I think everything here was very straightforward and um, I think the explanation and the rationale behind all these changes was very well stated and very clear and um, it all made sense. So I do support um, this staff recommendation. Uh, Vice Chair Chapman. Thank you. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm going to generally uh, echo that sentiment. Um, one thing I kind of want to flag is the um, substantial public controversy threshold. Um, I think that that is a good um, change. Um, and I'm, I would say I definitely support something that makes um, our processes more predictable and less arbitrary. Um, and so that so that way that there's there's clarity up front, and I, I think that's a really good change. 
Um, and then similarly, I think this is just yeah a, a good implementation of, of what we said we do in the uh, housing element. Um, I do have one question um, about sort of numerical requirements in the housing element. Um, so we have, we have times where we make very specific you know numeric, numerical changes. Um, are we do we need to make those exact numerical changes, or can we verify? or sorry, uh, m basically vary from those numerical changes. In, you know, I understand that maybe one direction is more restrictive and one direction is more permissive. Or do we, when we say we're going to make this to this X feet or X per percentage, do we basically need to do that exact change as outlined in the housing element? I think um, we're trying to translate what was approved by or certified equivalent by HCD, the state, um, and translate it into our regulations. And so staying as true to that when it's numerical as, as it is in the housing element program is, is our um, purpose. If, if the purpose statement is to you know, allow, if it says 35 feet or greater, or, then we would have to be great, go um, higher, not lower. So when it's a, like very specific, this to this. Then, then that's sort of what was certified, and then so what we should do without having to basically potentially make changes to the housing element. Yeah, that would be correct. Unless, again, unless it says 35 feet or greater. Okay, I understand. Thank you. And actually, it was a good reminder that I have actually not closed the public hearing, uh, which I was supposed to do before we got into deliberation. So I will close the public hearing, uh, which also end our, our question component. Um, it's, I, I forgot to close it, so it worked. <laughs> um, d is there uh, any other deliberation, Vice Chair Chapman? No, thank you. Okay. Um, Commissioner Miller. Um, I would just like to thank the staff for, uh, you know, streamlining some of these um, um, elements and um, explaining them and cleaning up the maintenance and whatnot. So, um, yeah, this is pretty straightforward to me as well. So I am in favor of going ahead with it. Um, one thing I wanted to note on um, is that um, our some of the, the most important documents that we have as a city, our general plan, our zoning ordinance, um, and these are really meant to be our, our guiding documents. So I think we go into creating any changes to these documents very cautiously. Um, there was an incredible amount of process that sort of went through um, to make those changes, to vet it with the community, uh, to really sort of build that foundation for our house. Um, and I know in the slides today, we saw the, the five different rounds of edits on the zoning um, code, which makes it feel like the lot. I know we got some public comment about the amount of changes that we've had in, in the past few years. Um, but I think something that gives me um, comfort in the presentation tonight was I, I think we've, um, most of what we're, we're doing is really trying to understand what it means as we implement that zoning ordinance. We're finding things we didn't quite get right or didn't quite understand the first time. Uh, we're seeing how the zoning ordinance gets applied to individual cases, and that's helping us flag these cleanups. And I think a lot of what we saw tonight was cleanup. I think that's really what we've seen with the last four rounds. The really significant changes that we see tonight 
are changes that came up during the housing element that have come up because of state law um, and that have been vetted through other larger public meetings as well. Um, and those you know, we're, we're needing to stay responsive to changes in state law and to the work that's happening with the housing element. So um, though it feels like a lot of changes, I, I think we're actually going in very cautiously and not, ma not making more changes than we need to. Um, and I think really holding to the goal of not making a lot of changes to the zoning ordinance. Um, I know there was a mention of sort of doing annual updates, and I, my hope is that as we, the, these first couple of years, we need to make a lot of those cleanup changes because we're still seeing how it all implements. Um, my hope is that we would see less and less changes in the years to come as we get it right. You know? um, and I, I do still think it's important that we have this sort of foundational document. Um, with that, I feel really good about the recommendations tonight. I, I don't have any suggestions for changes to the resolution, and uh, I do support it moving forward. Um, any additional comments for deliberation? Okay, would anybody like to do a motion? And whoever does a motion, remember the errata. <laughs> okay, uh, Commissioner Fullerton. I'll make motion, but how do we incorporate the erratum? I think you would read the uh, motion as it is in the agenda, and then you would say with the additional section 4V as noted in, and then I would read the top line, the that line. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I... Um, would like to make a motion to adopt the Planning Commission Resolution Number 24- entitled a resolution of the Planning Commission of the City of Goleta, California, recommending that the City Council adopt amendments to the General Plan, Coastal Land Use Plan, and Title 17 of the Goleta Municipal Code to implement Housing Element 2023 to 2031 programs and to update other portions of Title 17 and to determine the amendments to be exempt from the California Environmental Quality Act, case numbers 21-0002-GPA and 23-0007-ORD, with the addition of the erratum section 4.B, subsection 17.38.050B um, in B1 general plan and Title 17 amendments. Is that everything? <laughs> Does that work for staff? Okay. Can I get a second? I will second. Okay. Um, so, uh, what, Clerk Collier, can you lead us in a roll call vote of the Planning Commission? Or, or do you want us to vote on the screens today? I'll do a roll call vote. Okay. Commissioner Smith? Yes. Commissioner Miller? Yes. Commissioner Fullerton? Yes. Vice Chair Chapman? Yes. And Chair Maynard? Yes. Uh, with that, we will go ahead and close out item B1 uh, with a unanimous support. And we will move on to planning director comments. Director Imhoff, do you have any comments for us tonight? Yes. Uh, thank you, Madam Chair, and good evening, commissioners. I have a couple of items for you. As you heard during the last uh, hearing item, we have a lunch and learn workshop this Wednesday at noon um, via Zoom. This is on our electric vehicle reach code and we'll uh, showcase and gather input on 
Uh, it's an interactive event to learn how the city can support the transition to electric vehicles and improve charging access and new construction. So all are invited to participate. Then we, on Thursday, we have an energy efficiency event at the library. The Tri-County Regional Energy Network, or 3C-REN, is presenting a do-it-yourself energy savings toolkit workshop at the Goleta Valley Library. That's going to be at 2 p.m. this February 29th, and it's about how to uh, reduce your energy usage and save money by doing so. Um, then I wanted to make sure that everybody saw that we have new board and commission handbooks on the dais for... Uh, um, each of the commissioners tonight, um, so make sure that you uh, have received one of those. And then finally, um, going forward, I wanted to uh, let you know that we it looks like we're going to have light agendas at least through the month of March. At this point, we do not have any uh, March uh, hearing agenda items. We will, of course, keep you updated as uh, that evolves and as we um, uh, finalize our schedule. And that concludes my report. Thank you, Director Imhoff. I will now turn to the Planning Commission. Are there any comments from Planning Commissioners? Commissioner Smith. Uh, I, just, I just wanted to make an observation about some of these um, opportunities that are becoming available. Um, and, you know, I understand um, there's a, a focus on, you know, new, new construction in the EVs. But I've heard, you know, from a lot of our community, um, particularly a, a large percentage of our community are people who rent. Um, and so it, it's just an observation that I think it's... Um, It'll be an ongoing interest, uh, challenge for our community, for people who are renters. Are they going to be able to have um, electric vehicles or not? Um, can, can they implement uh, certain um, energy efficient changing if, if they're renting? Um, so it's just an observation. I know we can't figure it all out tonight. But. And Commissioner Smith, I do, I do want to indicate that the EV reach code will address multifamily housing as well as um, single family residential. So it's not limited to um, units that are owned units, but it does apply to new construction, mm -hmm. which is, of course, what we have the ability to condition. Certainly. Um, so, yeah, it's just uh, some interesting challenges moving forward. Any other comments from planning commissioners? I just want to thank everyone for coming out tonight. Like, I just get so excited seeing you all here. So thank you for coming and being with us this evening uh, and hearing about what's going on with our city. Um, we're a pretty small city, so just a few of y'all showing up and sharing your voices makes a huge impact in the decisions that we make. Um, so please come out again, um, and we're glad to see you here tonight. Uh, with that, uh, we're going to go ahead and move on. Uh, to the next item in our agenda, which is adjournment. Can I get a motion for adjournment? I'll motion to adjourn. I'll second. All right. Um, Clerk Collier, can you take us in a roll call vote of adjournment? Commissioner Smith? Yes. Commissioner Miller? Yes. Commissioner Fullerton? Yes. Vice Chair Chapman? Yes. Chair Maynard? Yes. And we are adjourned.